Hi, I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEP's Middle East Political Science Podcast, a series of conversations with scholars working in the field. Uh, with me today is Stephen Cook. He's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he's the author of a new book, False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East. Uh, Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you, Mark. All right, Stephen, so tell us about this book, um, False Dawn, uh, and, um, you, you know, there's been a lot of books now that have been written about the Arab uprisings, the Arab Spring. Uh, what do you think you were trying to do with this book that is moving the conversation about the Arab world uh, a little bit forward? Um, well, first, thanks for the opportunity to let me talk about the book, and uh, among the books that have come out is your, your terrific book. Um, I'm glad to be part of the conversation. I think, you know, there, there are two things about False Dawn that I wanted to get across. One is just a kind of general idea about so much has been written about the, the Arab uprisings that this really is very much continues to be a human struggle. Uh, you know, and when we talk about stuff like that, that people rising up, grab their freedom and liberation, it's sort of these kind of gauzy images in our, in our head. And, you know, we're about the same age. Remember, post-1989, people thinking that the world was changing forever and it was the end of history. And I had that in my mind in, in thinking about those moments and a kind of exhilaration of 2011 and that it really was going to be extremely difficult. Even and, and, you noted, and you noted that early in the book. You said that everybody, when they were writing about it, they would have these disclaimers. This is going to be a long and difficult process. But nobody really seemed to believe nobody it. Nobody really seemed to believe it. And I, I would include myself in that. I, you know, as you well know, I was there for the first very couple of days of the uprising in Tahrir Square. And then we were back in Egypt together about 11 months later um, to see an, another aspect of, uh, of street protest in, in, in Cairo. And there was this sense like, wow, people really were kind of taking matters into their own hands. And there were all these creative opponents of, of the regimes in the region, and it, it, it kind of burst on the scene, and there was so much hope, but that as scholars, I think we understood better that there were obstacles. And the book is is really written for a broad audience, the policy community, uh, traditional academics like yourself, uh, general readers. What I'm trying to do is get beyond those gauzy images, and to also get beyond the kind of popular discourse uh, where... People are kind of sick of the, the Middle East, and they're like, oh, Arabs, oh, Muslims, they can't do it. To me, it was important to kind of investigate really what happened. Were these revolutions, were, were, or were they just rebellions? And the institutional legacies that people like Hosni Mubarak and Muammar Gaddafi and Ben Ali left behind, or how the Turkish government, the Turkish leadership, which was elected in 2002 and promised to raise the authoritarian institutions of the state, are now using similar authoritarian means to gain control of the political environment. To me, these were important things. And then the argument takes another step. It says, in this kind of contested political environment and moments of failure across the board, questions about identity become accentuated. And the failures of the uprisings are contribute in a lot of ways to this extremist phenomenon that we've... Uh, didn't give birth to it, but... It certainly contributes to this moment of, of violence. That's why I think, you know, combining a bunch of these things adds some nuance to, to the story and consciously tries to bring the story to a broader audience so that they can understand what happened a bit better than the kind of 
kind of lousy commentary about it recently. Well, you know, so it's interesting, though, when, when you're standing there in uh, Tucker Square in January 2011, it seems like you have two kind of different perspectives that you were able to bring to this than most of my academic colleagues. One is that unlike most of us at the time, you had actually already written a book about militaries and had spent a fair amount of time getting to know uh, people in the military, which I think was not a popular topic for us in in, in academia at the time. And then secondly, since you worked for the Council on Foreign Relations, you probably had a bit more access to senior levels of Arab kind of political leadership than than many, many... kind of more, uh, many traditional academics would have. Right. So how did those inform the way that you approach things as you saw events unfolding, those different types of access and that different type of experience? You know, it's interesting that you, you, you asked the question because in the prologue of the book, I put my reader in the middle of Takriya Square, or with me trying to get into Takriya Square on the night of January 25th. And, and I remember what an exhilarating feeling it was when I got there and was talking to people, and I, I hope I conveyed that very, very well, but I remember two things. One, on February 11th, 18 days later, when Mubarak fell, and there were these huge parties going on in Takhrir Square, I said, if I were Egyptian, I would never leave Takhrir Square. No way would I trust the Egyptian military to, as they were saying at the time, prepare the country for democracy. That was never their intention. They were salvaging the regime. They were making sure the regime didn't fall. They were ensuring that there was a leadership change. And that's one of the key aspects of the book, is that for all of the change that went on, basically what you had, you had a change in personalities uh, in, in Egypt, and some obviously some adjustment on the part uh, of the Egyptians. I will tell you one of the great stories of the uprising that also informed uh, False Dawn. The night before, on January 24th, 2011, I was, I was in Cairo, obviously, and I was with a delegation from the Council on Foreign Relations, and we met with Omar Suleiman, the Egyptian intelligence chief. This was in the evening. This was, you know, 8, 9 o'clock in the evening. And someone said to him, Omar Pasha, is Tunisia going to happen in Egypt? And he said, no way. He said, the president is strong, and the police have a strategy, and it's not going to happen. So maybe it's not just the fault of uh, academics for not predicting the Arab Spring. No, not at all. Not at all. And I, I, I hope that I got, you know, I, in, in my first chapter, I kind of trace lots of what people were saying about the Middle East. Going back, you know, to the 1980s, I tried to convey that people know so much about the Middle East, but it was so hard to actually predict these kinds of things because they're not predictable. Um what was and what was particularly hard was trying to figure out what was going to come next because I think a lot of people were infused with the enthusiasm of the moment and Washington really saw an opportunity how can we make a difference rather than recognizing that this was really truly a moment of empowerment in the region and that the capacity of the United States to influence politics in the region in a positive direction I think was really limited. Well, you know, and throughout the book, I think that does come through very clearly. You're, uh, you know, you're writing as a participant observer in the policy community. <laughs> and, uh, and so in some ways, uh, you're, you, you really do a good job, I think, of showing the ways in which people get things right. I mean, how much people in the intelligence apparatus or in the academic or, or policy communities, how much they know about these right. countries, um, at least the good ones. Um, but then you're also very critical of them in terms of their ability to translate that into useful policy advice right. or into anything which kind of breaks out of that conventional wisdom. 
Um, now you're you're living here in the middle of that, right? right? So so how do you square that circle? You, it, it's almost like you can see the cage you're in, but how do you break out of it? Yeah, it's well, I, I think in it in it in a way, I, I think you've captured what I was trying to get at the tensions between understanding a lot, and I have a not to give away the whole book, but I have this anecdote that opens the first chapter of a meeting of people in think tank land and traditional academics and people from the intelligence community talking about what will be the trends in the Middle East in the foreseeable future, and they defined it as three to five years. And there was an amazing, interesting discussion. At the end of the day, everybody said, well, though, you know, stability will be the, the trend. That was December 13th, 2010. Four days before right. Muhammad Bouazizi he killed himself and, and, and started this whole thing. So there is that tension. And what I come down to... And then, but, but, but it's more than that, though, right? Because what they, what they were saying, according to your anecdote, was that there were all of these drivers of instability and all these reasons to think that the Arab world would be unstable, but in terms of point predictions, right. nobody was going to step up and say, right. sometime in the next week... Right. Right, and, there, and revolutions there, and, will be. You know, and there was the, the obstacles to collective action are too high. Um, you know, the, the Egyptians have been able to muddle through this this idea of a kind of liberalized autocracy. The, you know, the, the Dan Brumberg argument, which I think was a great argument and a seminal mm -hmm. article, but it kind of morphed into this evil genius type thing that you know the Arab leaders could deflect and diffuse opposition in ways, and and they had insight into these things. When it was really more trial and error, I jump later on in, in chapter five called, in a kind of snarky way, Getting the Middle East Right. And that's where I, I explore how difficult it was to translate a lot of this knowledge into policy stuff. And what it come down to is, and hey, these are all really smart people. We all know them. Lots of experience. This is hard. This is hard, number one. And number two, I come to, I come to the conclusion... It's not about us. There's not a lot. There wasn't a lot for the United States to do. And, you know, some people read this book as a kind of ringing defense of the Obama policy in the Middle East. I, look, I think when it came to Egypt, when it came to Turkey, when it came to Tunisia, I, I, there isn't that much that the United States has to bring to the table to convince leaders to do things differently or what we think is, is better. Libya, I think, is somewhat of a different story because there was an actual military intervention that we then pulled back from, and we might have been able to make a difference there. But, of course, you can play history over and over and, and over again. So, but when you when you look at that, I mean, one of the tensions you see there then is that, you know, the job of Think Tankistan is to produce policy recommendations for the U.S. government. And if you look at it and you say the U.S. government actually can't do very much, then kind of what's the point? Well, this is sort of my radical intellectual project here is to say, you know, we sit around, and it's not just us, it's people in the State Department, the CIA, the Defense Department, the White House, something happens and everybody gathers around a table and you get, you get the email too, you know, we come to a meeting and let's talk about it. And, and it comes from a good place. You know, what can the United States do to help people make their lives better? But that it then becomes this kind of process of self-justification. Um, and that maybe there are these moments and these times where there isn't a lot for the United States. To do that in and of itself to me was a policy recommendation. Now, I'm the first person to admit that there are real limits to what we can do here. Um, 
that's why in, in my own work, and I think in False Dawn, what I'm trying to do for the policymaker is provide a broader context for them to think about these things. You know, my previous book, The Struggle for Egypt, I think, didn't really have a lot of policy recommendations, but it was a way to that policymakers could situate what was happening in Egypt in a broader story about Egyptian political history. Now, one thing which is interesting here is that when I read your book, one of the biggest contrasts with my book is the almost complete absence of other external actors. In other words, the the the, the Gulf states are virtually absent from the book. Yeah. So you don't get a story of Qatar and the UAE intervening in, in Libya right. or the role of the Gulf states in, in supporting and promoting the coup in Egypt. And I'm curious, you know, do you do you th- is that because you also think that those external actors have limited options, or is it? I mean, why is it that that they don't appear in your narrative in the same way? My contract was only for one hundred and ten thousand words. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, I think I do think that they are important players, but at the same time, again, and and the way in which people in these countries identify their struggles as kind of existential struggles, I think necessarily limits the role of outsiders. So let's just take Egypt, one of our favorite countries. Um, Think about how much money the Emirates and the Saudis have poured into Egypt since July 2013, since the coup in Egypt. And they've had very, very limited ability to push Abdel Fattah Sisi in the direction either economically or politically. Economics wasn't what the Emirates and the Saudis were saying to them. The, the kind of reforms that the Egyptians have undertaken in kind of piecemeal fashion is a function of the fact that the Egyptians themselves got to a point where it was completely unsustainable and they had to do it. I do think, though, that the Qataris, the Emirates, the Saudis, they are important actors. My goal was to explore what was happening inside of these things. And that's why yeah. I'm so happy to be in conversation with you and others who have focused on some of these uh, external actors. Well, let, let's look at that Egypt a, a little more carefully, right? Because one of the arguments that you, that you and I have have gone back and forth with a lot of the policy community about is this question of American leverage over Egyptian decisions. And I think that one of the kind of biggest lines of debate here in Washington is about whether and how the U.S. can use its military assistance or its other influence to shape Egyptian politics and why didn't Obama do this or what could he have done. And you're very critical of that, basically saying that, well, I'll let you say it, but, but, but Tell us about why you think it is that the U.S. is unable to exert meaningful leverage. Well, I, I think there's a, there's a couple of reasons. One, I don't think, I think there's one, the, the politics of it all. The, the short time horizons of a president of the United States. Does anybody want to be the person who lost Egypt? Um, you know, that's going to be part of your legacy. It probably wouldn't be the most important part of one's legacy, but Egypt is a big, important country, almost 100 million people. And Egypt is important not really for what it can do in a positive way, but all the problems that it could spin out from (laughs) deteriorating even further, from really becoming a a failed state. So I think there was that. So no one's really wanting to risk using that leverage that we think we have like a hammer and sending Egypt off in a place where it's going to create more problems for us. I think the second thing, I, you know, that that's an argument. I'm not sure that I, I think the argument that's more compelling to me at this point is docking the Egyptians' military aid was not going to make the country more democratic or less unstable. And that we needed to 
recognize after it became clear there was not going to be a transition to democracy that here was we were confronted with a reality and that if we had to work with the Egyptians in discrete areas or that if we wanted to if things went really badly if we wanted to have some do something with the Egyptians we couldn't completely shut them off and that ultimately this 1.3 billion dollars isn't actually a lot of money uh, to spend. My, my view was, and has been for some time, that the threats with the Egyptian is, Egyptians are going to work and that maybe we would positively condition our aid to them. That's not going to happen because Congress will never do anything uh, like that. But unless someone's really willing to take that risk with Egypt, I don't think we have as much leverage. And let's face it, they do stuff for the United States that we think is important. I'm willing to have the conversation whether Egypt should be a pillar of American policy in the region any longer. Maybe it shouldn't. Maybe that will give us a little more leverage with the Egyptians. But otherwise, I think it's kind of half-baked to say, oh, well, we don't really need the Suez Canal. Oh, well, we don't really want, you know, this kind of logistical cooperation with the, that the Pentagon will fight to the death for. I mean, but you've, you've written elsewhere that uh, U.S.-Egyptian relations are not likely to continue the way they happen. The strategic right. foundations are not what they once were. So maybe we'll have an opportunity in the future. But, you know, I, I think the Egyptians are, are over, their, over the moon with Trump, uh, with the Trump administration, because they see an ally in, you know, the war on terrorism and the paranoia about the Muslim Brotherhood. I think this is a moment. Ultimately, if you look at what the Egyptians are doing in the region how they view things, and how we view things. And ultimately, President Trump actually really wants to retrench and not be as active in, in the region. But the Egyptians have a, a, a different worldview and a different view of the conflicts in the region. Look, they've, they've aligned themselves with the Russians in, in Syria. Uh, plus, they're, they can't make things happen in a way in which they tell themselves they once were able to. So I think over the long term, a longer term, and, and I think after the Trump administration, maybe where there's a normalization of American foreign policy, we'll see that this division goes. Imagine if there was no Islamic State threat in the Sinai Peninsula. Why would the, why would the United States, why would the Trump administration be? The, the Trump administration is interested in one thing, annihilating ISIS. That's their, that's their term for it. Other than that, what's, what's in it for us with the Egyptians? Let's switch to another uh, country that you've written about a lot over the years, in Turkey. And so one of the things which is really interesting in the book is the way that you trace the, the view of Turkey over this period since 2002, right. going from being this model of Muslim democracy to being something very different today. And, uh, you know, so, and it's really interesting to think about this, right? You know, d does that mean the fact that that Turkey took this trajectory, does that mean that the earlier views of Turkey were wrong? Right. You know, and I've taken a lot of heat from other Turkey watchers because early on, during the tenure of the Justice and Development Party, um, I wrote quite positively about the reform programs that they had pushed through the parliament and their satisfying enough of the Copenhagen criteria to get an invitation to join the European Union. And it really did look like uh, 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 Turkey was genuinely making strides and, and, and doing the kinds of things that would lead towards a more democratic future. Um, what my critics, and, and, you know, I stand by my work, what my critics will say is, you didn't understand that Erdogan 
was an authoritarian, that his worldview was authoritarian. He was the guy, after all, who said, democracy is like a streetcar, you can get off when you want. And their view is, in a slightly conspiratorial way, that the EU-related reforms were totally instrumental to diminish the role of the military, put their opponents in a place so that they could then transform Turkey in the way in which they now have, which is an autocracy. I see history and politics unfolding in a different kind of way. And there were a number of points, 2007 and 2008, that struck me were important in altering Erdogan and the trajectory of politics. And very quickly, uh, the military's effort to prevent Abdullah Gul from becoming the president in the spring of 2007 because his wife wears hijab. Uh, then the Ergenekon revelations. Now, Ergenekon became a conspiracy within a conspiracy within a conspiracy. But I think that there was something to the idea that people were plotting against uh, against the, the government. And then there was the closure case before the Constitutional Court. Everybody forgets this, that the prosecutor general brought a case against the AKP, calling it a center for anti-secular activity, and that the court ruled that it was. just didn't have enough votes on the court to actually close the party. This kind of piqued Erdogan's paranoia that the nationalist, Kemalist elite would never allow them to govern. And so he shifted to a strategy of political polarization in an effort to pulverize his opponents. To me, that's a much more compelling story rather than, you know, Erdogan, Abdullah Gul, Bulent Orange, and other founders of the party saying, okay, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do these European Union reforms, we're going to screw the military, we're going to screw big business, and so on and so on, and then we'll pave the way forward. It's much to me, it, it makes more sense to me that it's history and politics much more contingent. But again, I, I take the heat for, but I, what I was, I'm, I'm willing to take that heat. When I, when I was following all you Turkey people, uh, having this argument on Twitter, um, I, 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 I thought of this great analogy, which I want to use in an article, but I'll just use it here. Yeah, uh, you know, use and uh, then use it. Uh, I'll use it in both places. But to me, it's like, you know, it's, the Cubs win the World Series in 2016. And then you come up and say, yes, but here's an article you wrote in 2009 <laughs> that says that the Cubs are a terrible team. How do you explain this? I think that's it. It's a, it's a good analogy. There is, you know, especially people who work on Turkey, there is this kind of emotional engagement with it because Turks are so deeply polarized and the Turks want you to sign up with a team. And if you don't sign up with the team, everybody assigns you a team. And so I guess I'm on the, everybody hates the Yankees, even though I'm truly a Yankee fan. I guess I'm on the Yankees of Turkey. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Well, so taking the, a broader view then, so you, so in the book you basically make the argument then that uh, there were no revolutions, and so the, the false dawn, this idea that you know, this was much more about a, a, a very real and potent challenge to the status quo, but ultimately one which led to something that was not democracy. These right. were not revolutions, and that, in your view, I think that was never really in the cards. So we, look at the Middle East right now. You know. Are we back then to a stable status quo, or are we still in the middle of this kind of turbulence mm. and uncertain trajectories? Right. You know, because I think it's a pretty important question yeah. now for how the U.S. policy community and actors in the region right. should think about the future. You know, what what was interesting to me when I, I thought about what countries I wanted to write about, what the what the mix of cases would be, it was the intention was to have four countries with different outcomes, but none of them completely satisfying based on 
the way we felt and saw things in, in 2011. Um, my view is, is that at least, you know, it's very hard to predict the future. I mean, look at, look at, look at those people December 13, 2010 saying, oh, stability is the hallmark of the region. Um, but it seems to me that what we'll have is this authoritarian instability. These things have changed in the region. People are mobilized. They are willing to take um, their grievances and try to process them through politics and in the streets. Everything seems to be contested in the region right now. And you have a series of leaders who haven't been able to kind of capture the loyalty of enough people that they need to resort to coercion and violence. You put those two things together and you have leaders who are struggling to master the political system and people trying to push back. So it's not a return to the kind of Mubarak kind of status quo. It's an effort, you know, see, I look at Sisi as kind of Mubarak on steroids, but someone who can't possibly manage the political environment that he's in because people have been, have been mobilized. Does that open the door for the potential for change down the road? I think absolutely. But for the moment, the way in which kind of inst- political institutions of the state are being used, it's going to be very hard for people to, to do it. Of course, there'll be a revolution tomorrow after I say that. <laughs> <All right. laughs> I'm willing to be proved you know, All right, incorrect we had, and, 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 and we've got it on tape. <laughs> All right. We've been, ta- we've been speaking with uh, Stephen Cook, uh, Council on Foreign Relations, author of the brand new book, False Dawn, Protest, Democracy, and Violence in the New Middle East. Uh, Stephen, uh, thanks for speaking with us. Thanks for having the conversation, Mark.